Welcome to the All Things Agile podcast, your destination for tips and interviews with the leaders in the world of Agile. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, and please check out our sponsor, TeamAccelerator.com. And now, here's your host, Ronnie Andrews Jr. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Things Agile. I'm very excited to announce that Ken Rubin is our guest today on the show. Ken is a noted author of Essential Scrum, as well as being a public speaker and Agile instructor. Now, before we begin, a quick reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and we accept no legal liability. So let's get started. First off, Ken, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Really glad to have you on the show. Now, I've given the audience just a quick introduction, but can you please take a few minutes and explain a little bit more about yourself, both personally and professionally? I really want to get a chance to know you. Sure. So my um my background is software engineering, and my degrees are all in computer science. And I've had a typical path through most software companies. I've been a developer, project manager, uh, VP of engineering at a number of companies, uh, both large and small. Um, I've done 10 startup companies in my career. Ended up taking two of those public on the NASDAQ. I uh, did my two-year uh, stint with IBM in the mid-1990s where I, I helped companies. I, I worked in a team, we had 130 people. We ran around North America building large distributed object systems. Uh, and if anybody's old enough to remember it, I come out of the small talk world. So back in the late 1980s, I worked with, I helped bring small talk out of the research labs at Xerox Park. And I worked with a startup company that was a spinoff of Xerox Park called uh, Park Place Systems. So we were the uh, early market object technology folks. So we brought uh, you know small talk and object technology to the market, and so I've been doing agile since the early 1990s, uh, Scrum formally since 2000. Uh, in those days, I worked for a startup company in Colorado called Genomica, and uh, we, there was a 90-person engineering team. They let the VP of engineering go. I ended up inheriting the engineering team, and we trained, which wasn't functioning all that well, and we transitioned everybody over to Scrum. And that ended up working out much better for us. And, and I've been using Scrum ever since. It's about 14 years. Uh, these days, I spend my time out either you know, doing Scrum training classes, Scrum or Kanban-type training classes, um, or doing coaching, you know, Agile-like coaching. Uh, and I, I hope that you know, in our discussion today, I can draw on a number of examples that I, that I have the benefit of seeing a lot of different companies and you know, what's working and what isn't working for them. Thank you for that introduction, Ken. I'm really looking forward to the insights you can provide us based on your considerable experience. The first question I'd like to ask you regarding your book, Essential Scrum, is in regards to the dedication and introduction. Uh, it really got me thinking about the importance of relationships and software. I also started thinking about how relationships or soft skills play into the success of Scrum. What is your insight or advice on how relationships affect Agile teams? So uh, It's a good question to start with. To me, the unit of capacity in Agile is the team, right? So you know, even the Agile Manifesto calls that out, you know, individuals and interactions over process and tools. It really is about the team. So how they interact with each other, how they perform is of utmost importance. So the relationships among the members of the team is critical. If you're going to have self-organizing teams, they have to have trust in one another. That's, that's one of the characteristics that, for me, distinguishes a group 
from a team, you know, grouped simply being a bunch of people that I threw together with a common label. And, and honestly, the only thing they have in common are the t-shirts they printed up that have the name of the group on it. A, a team is a group that's, that's gone through the, the stages, right? They, you know, sort of those Tuckman stages, you know, forming, storming, norming, and performing, right? And, and if you've made a real investment to turn a group into a team, uh, first, they've had to figure out these soft skills issues, how to work well together. Otherwise, they would never become a high-performing team. They would constantly be at odds with one another. So it, one of management's responsibility is to help put the right people on the team. But once they're there, it's the soft skills that, that help bring these members together, that help them work well and function well. In, in most scrum classes, there's an exercise, the, uh, the yes and versus yes but exercise. And the intent behind that, it's, it's actually an exercise that's borrowed from improvisational uh, comedy training. And the idea is to try and help teams understand how to work well together, how to form those relationships, how to take one person's idea, build on top of it, and not be in a very yes-but style of you know passive, aggressive, cutting things down. Oh, yeah, I heard what you said. It seems like a good idea, but let me now tell you why it sucks. Right? That. That's not a foundation for building a high-performance team. I think if, if the soft skills are not addressed, very likely you won't have self-organizing teams, which are the unit of capacity in doing Agile. And for that reason, you'll likely fail. I definitely agree. What came to my mind is the book Speed of Trust by uh, Stephen Covey. It describes how trust is a major factor in how people fill in the gaps in communication and that with a high-trust environment, the team is able to move more quickly. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, how we disagree is as important as how we do agree. Uh, at no point would I ever suggest that the team members shouldn't disagree and shouldn't have a vigorous debate. They should do it, though, in a, in a very proactive way, in, in a way that's reinforcing their ability to come up with an innovative solution, not inhibiting that ability. So if they don't have the skills to work with each other and challenge each other, uh, then very likely that the best they'll achieve is mediocrity. Excellent point. And I think that segues into my next question. There is a quote in your book that I love, which is that one of the benefits of Scrum is that it really exposes existing issues. I couldn't agree more. It's been my experience that Scrum really sheds light on underlying problems or processes that are actually bottlenecks. One of the challenges that I've seen is that sometimes the personalities and procedures that were in place before adopting Agile may be discovered to be part of the concerns. Some of the potential personalities involved may even be in leadership roles. So one question I would like to ask you is, how does an organization work on improving their adoption of Agile when much of the legacy culture, leadership style, and procedures are still in place? Yeah, th this is actually a critical question, and how people respond in this situation, to me, is one of the telltale signs as to whether they'll be successful. Uh, let me give you a specific example. Some years ago, I was giving a management presentation during lunchtime of one of my classes. So we, we budgeted 90 minutes, brought in food, the, the management team, so senior managers and director level people and some VPs are in the room. And I made the following comment. I said that, you know, by the end of your sprint, you should get the work done 
and you should have zero known defects in what you've just built. Uh, oh, and I had also mentioned that members of the you know, testing, you know, people who had historically been members of a testing team should be fully integrated in with the developers onto a single team. They should work together collaboratively, zero defects, and get things done. Immediately, this lady in the back of the room raises her hand. She said, this won't work here. I said, why not? And I go, what part of that? She said, well, I manage the QA team. Yes. And she goes, well, you just told me that I should assign my people out onto scrum teams. I'm like, yes, right. We work collaboratively that way. I said, yeah, well, here's the problem. You also said that at the end of every sprint, we should have zero known defects. And the reason that won't work is because we compensate our testers based on the number of defects they find. So she's saying, basically, that's not very motivating if you're one of my testers, because you're going to make less money if we do that. Now, what she says next is the telltale sign for me as to whether a company has a hope of being successful with Agile. Here's what she didn't say. She did not say, well, in that case, I'm just not going to assign my people out onto Scrum teams. I'm not going to do that. I'll just keep them together. Meaning, I see the impediment. Agile has, sh has shown a bright light on where we have an impediment. And rather than address the impediment head on, Instead, what I'll do is I'll simply alter the definition of Agile so that that impediment doesn't exist. Now, companies that are bought into that approach will probably fail and fail quickly with Agile. Instead, what she actually said was, well, I think I'm going to have to have a conversation with the VP of HR and the, v you know, and the VP of, uh, of engineering so we can discuss how we're going to change the compensation plan you know, for our testers. Uh, now we have in place people that understand that the current process, the current you know, compensation system is at odds with them being successful with Agile. And rather than run away from the problem, hide when the impediment gets exposed, they're willing to address it head on. So my advice, if you don't have the executives trained or understanding these key points, you're likely going to have a problem. By the way, her next comment, you know, I mentioned other things like don't pull people out, don't pull people off of scrum teams to work on your pet projects. You know, another person like raised her hand and said, yeah, I do that all the time. What else shouldn't I do? So at least in an environment like that, they're willing to entertain it. So my approach to trying to address the problem is the leadership requires the, the proper kind of training and coaching principally on core agile principles. That's where I try to focus with them. You know, and so if I can get 60 to 90 minutes with them over lunchtime, it's a good start. Not as good as having them in a multi-day class, but they're not willing to make that commitment usually. So, you know, get 60 to 90 minutes, help them understand the core agile principles, and, and hopefully they can then align their behavior with how we're going to be doing agility downstream. Because if they don't, we will have a serious disconnect and companies that are experiencing that likely will fail in their attempt to use agile because of that disconnect. It's, it's a critical question, and either they're going to understand what we're trying to do and embrace it, or they're not, and those companies are going to have a harder time. I love that example. One of the approaches that I've seen previously is that the directors, VPs, and executive team actually complete certified Scrum Master training. I believe that really helped them better understand the vision and what Agile teams actually need. I, I find it beneficial when people like that People with you know, high-level titles actually attend the classes. Um, part of the benefit is not just their own understanding, which is profound, 
but a second benefit as well. And that is, you know, for example, in one class, I was talking about how teams should give range answers to questions as a way of communicating uncertainty, range answers to planning questions, like when will you be done? Give a range answer uh, between X number of sprints and Y number of sprints. And in this one class, an engineer stood up and he said, yeah, but my management's never going to accept a range answer. And there's only one person in this class. It was, a, it was a large class. And the only person in this class wearing a suit was the general manager of the whole division, who then stood up, turned around, and he said, well, I'm the guy asking the questions, and I'm telling you I'm willing to accept a range answer. You know, I'd like to talk to you about how we can keep range answers within one calendar quarter, but yes, a range answer will be acceptable. That pretty much addresses the whole point right there. And people are looking at each other like, okay. I mean, he is the guy who's asking the questions and he just said he's willing to do it. So I guess we can actually move on here. And under the assumption, we can provide range answers. So getting those senior execs in a classroom, I think is a high priority, but it, it, it doesn't happen nearly as frequently as it should. Uh, occasionally, I'll get the luxury of having a one day and, and rarely, but it does happen, a two day class with leadership. I would say one out of every four classes I do, we have that hour to 90 minute lunchtime conversation, which is, you know, precisely an hour to 90 minutes good. Not as good as a half a day or a day or two days. Great answer. Leading to my third question, which is adaptive versus predictive, which is referenced in your book. One of the examples that came to my mind was release planning. Could you please take a moment to explain to our listeners adaptive versus predictive and perhaps how it might apply to release planning? Be happy to. The, a lot of folks, think, when they think of waterfall, they think predictive. Predictive upfront work. In waterfall, we have to put together the, first, the full requirements document on the first day when we have the worst possible knowledge we'll ever have about that project. And so to a certain extent, you have to predict. You, if you were being rude, you'd say you'd have to guess what all the requirements are. A lot of people then think of Agile as adaptive more just in time. So if you if you imagine like these two being on either sides like of a of a teeter-totter of a seesaw what I'd like to suggest is if you're overly aggressive in either dimension overly predictive or overly adaptive you're probably going to be unhappy. If you're overly predictive you're probably just going to dip down into the guessing pool, you know, to the point where you might say so like oh you couldn't possibly know that not on the first day. Not when you have the worst possible knowledge you'll ever have. At this point, you're just guessing. That seems dangerous. On the other hand, if you're fully adaptive, meaning we'll do everything just in time, which in the context of release planning would mean no upfront planning whatsoever. My guess is that's going to feel chaotic. Agile isn't about you know, everything done adaptive just in time. It's about finding balance. Balance between upfront work, predictive work, and downstream adaptive work. And where you set that balance point will be different for different, you know, different types of projects or products, different companies. So let's buy into the fact that it's a misperception to believe that Agile is anti-upfront planning. Because, of course, that's simply not true. Uh, Agile is anti-waste. And if you do too much planning upfront, then you're going to inject too much unnecessary planning inventory into the system that'll have to be reworked or thrown out when something goes wrong. So the, the principle here is upfront planning should be helpful, just not excessive. In the spirit of just enough, just in time, 
but there's nothing in there that says avoid upfront planning. So release planning. You know, if you very specifically look at that, if you, if you define what it means, in, in today's world, release planning is becoming a, a harder term to use because uh, in, in, the, in the past, a release typically was performed after multiple sprints of work were completed. So in that, in that scenario, a release was larger than a sprint. But what about the teams that release every sprint? You could argue, well, isn't sprint planning the same as release planning? Or what about teams that do continuous delivery or continuous deployment? They could release every feature as it becomes available during a sprint. So you could even argue that in that context, a release is smaller than the sprint. So let's, let's change the term just for a moment. Let's call it longer-term planning. And people might say, well, longer than what? Well, longer than a sprint. Even if you release every sprint, or even if you release multiple times during the sprint, there's still a benefit to looking out at a horizon that's larger than a single sprint. We might be using milestone releases along the path to get to a bigger goal. And so release planning is really trying to plan to that larger goal. Okay, well, that presents certain issues. Here you are on the first day of the project. What if that longer goal is six months out or even longer? Can you actually give any kind of accurate answer early on? And the answer is that you're going to get asked the questions. And we all know what the questions are. They're questions like, when will you be done? Or how many of those features do you think will be available six months or nine months from now? And what's all this going to cost? Now, those seem like fair questions to ask. And for us, you know, trying to be in a position to answer them, we need to figure out what realistically we can do. And the good news is we can do some things. And the way we'll address it is, much like I was suggesting earlier, we give range answers. Right? In release planning, the smart approach is you always give a range answer to questions. So if they ask, when will you be done, telling, stating a specific date is likely going to be overly precise. On the first day of the project, you can't really be that precise. You don't have good enough information. But I can always be accurate right, by giving a range. I just have to give a sensible range. right? If I tell you it's going to take me four to seven sprints to get this done, that expresses one level of uncertainty. I mean, if I said it's going to take four to 29 sprints, that would express a completely different level of uncertainty. At a certain point, I know I can always be accurate, but it, it could be ridiculous. Yeah, I, you know, it's going to take between now and three years from now. Yeah, but that's not very helpful. So we try to give range answers that are accurate, that are reasonably actionable by the people who hear them. They can make a business decision. Should I do this? Should I not do it? So we have to do some amount of upfront planning to be in a position to answer those questions. Typically at the release planning level, we try to work with medium-sized stories. Not epics, they tend to be too big. Let's use more portfolio level planning but what some people might call features or even themes. Uh, so we try to generate a first pass of those and put you know, high-level size estimates on. And then based on a team's historic velocity or a forecasted velocity, we try to give a rough estimate. And we try to simplify the problem. Meaning if someone says, well, my release is going to be two years out, I don't think that's a reasonable time frame to be planning, especially because there's likely very important increments along that path that we could plan to first. So rule number one is always try to turn a big problem into a small one when doing planning and always give range answers. So I do think by balancing upfront predictive work and sort of just-in-time adaptive work, we can do reasonable release planning. 
with a very, excuse me, with a very important caveat. We update the release plan every sprint. Release planning is not a one-time, did it at the very beginning activity. Yes, I did do it early on because I, I probably got asked some questions I have to address, but I update my release plan every single sprint as I acquire better knowledge. That's how I tend to approach it. Perfect answer. My next question is also from Essential Scrum, which is in regards to idle work versus idle workers. I've seen this come up countless times and can be very frustrating for me. I often see management focus on idle workers. For example, why is this person only at X percentage of utilization and rather than a team mindset of why is their work being idle? Uh, could you please take a few minutes and explain idle work versus idle workers for the audience? I will. It, to me, this is a critical topic, and I cover it in all of my classes because it lays a foundational principle that I need. The way I try to explain it to folks is this way. The largest cost in software product development is the people. I mean, once, once we buy hardware and whatever software people need to do their job, the real cost of any software organization is the cost of the people that are, that are hired, which is why budget almost always equals headcount. So what people are interested in is eliminating waste. Everybody's interested in eliminating waste. The, but the issue, of course, is that within organizations, there are multiple forms of waste. And those types of waste typically trade off, meaning it's usually impossible to simultaneously eliminate all forms of waste. So what people tend to do is they go after the waste they can see. And since we said the largest cost in software product development is people, then a visible, obvious form of waste would be underutilization of the people. Meaning if I hire someone in to do testing and I pay them 100% salary, there's an expectation that that person's going to test 100% of their time. Now, Let's say, and by the way, my management probably measures me on how busy I keep that tester, assuming that the tester reports to me. So if I hire that individual in, pay them 100% salary and assign them to a project, and that project requires 60% of their time, if I were to stop there, it will give the appearance of a 40% underutilization of my tester. And, and I'll look bad to my management because I'm paying this person 100% salary but yet the individual is only working 60% of the time. Well, okay, that won't do. So to solve the problem, I'm going to do the obvious. I'll probably assign that person to a second project, which will need them, let's say, 30% of their time. So, okay, I now have them up to 90% utilization, but there's still a 10% underutilization. Well, it works so well for two projects. Let's try three. Okay, clever me. I've now eliminated idle tester waste. I've driven underutilization of my tester to zero. They're 100% utilized. So I have eliminated that form of waste. The question, of course, is what just went the other way? Meaning we said sometimes waste trade off. As one goes down, the other goes up. Well, here's the problem. The idle workers weren't the waste that was causing the most economic damage. Here's the problem. Uh, as we keep people that busy, chances are, they're going to start blocking work, right? So as an obvious example, I've assigned that person to work on three separate teams. So it's very likely at any point in time 
that person's blocking two teams, right? Because they're working on one of the projects and the other two are waiting. Well, that means the work is now idle. So what you end up seeing is there's this inventory that's building up all over product development. Inventory being the blocked work that's sitting in queues waiting to get done. And the problem is that blocked work, that inventory, is causing huge economic damage. And people don't focus on it because that's an invisible form of waste. Hard to see our inventory and product development because typically it's bits out on a disk, you know, code out on a server, test cases. Whereas inventory in other contexts tends to be more visible. So they go after the visible waste, which is idle workers, and they ignore the kind of invisible waste, which is idle work, because the people are still 100% busy. So it looks like the system is working at capacity. The problem is that if you examine what happens in large companies, so at scale, if you look at how work flows across their organization, across the system, the collection of teams they put together to get the job done, what you often find is up to 90% of the time the work is blocked. Meaning, uh, imagine you took a stopwatch out of your pocket when a customer asks you to work on a feature and you agree to do it. If you click the stopwatch at that point, and time starts running, you don't get to click the stopwatch again until you've actually delivered the feature to a customer. And so what I'm saying is from click to click on that stopwatch, in a lot of organizations that I visit, up to 90% of the time or more, the work isn't moving. And that's causing severe economic damage. And the reason I say that is it's injecting a cost of delay. The work could have been done faster and delivered to customers faster. And delivering work faster generates revenue today, right? Revenue today is worth more than revenue tomorrow because revenue today generates money and money has a time value. So when you compare the cost of delay of idle work against maybe a little bit of underutilization of the workers, you realize we're looking at the wrong thing. In organizations, it's all about the idle work, but that's exactly the opposite of what most companies do. Most organizations attempt to optimize the utilization of their people, and by doing so, they inject a lot of delay into how long it takes to get the work done, and that delay has a real cost, and they don't quantify it, so they don't really see the impact of that. So you focus on the idle work. You don't worry about idle workers, right? You're, you're trying to achieve what I call fast, flexible flow, to very quickly flow the work across your teams in a fast and flexible way. You subordinate other decisions to that, which means I don't really care how idle or how occupied or utilized your workers are. What I do care about is how quickly you can flow the work across your organization in a high quality way. So in a sense, most organizations are focused in the wrong place. They're watching the workers and they should be watching the work. That, that's the concept here. Well, unfortunately, I've seen that happen many times, and especially with the example regarding QA, is such a common practice to do just what you described, where one person is placed on multiple teams to boost utilization numbers. That practice actually injects more project risk because if the person is working on team A, B, and C, if team A hits a major bump in the road, there's no margin to absorb it. Work, work simply becomes blocked in the other teams. It can really cause havoc. I love your answer, which forces the organization to ask better questions.
No, it's a, it's a good example. I'll, I'll leave you with one analogy for the listeners. And, and I know it's the extreme analogy, so don't, don't get upset because it's just the extreme, but it'll illustrate the point. Uh, isn't it true we pay firefighters to be idle most of the time? I mean, if you think about it, you don't really want to keep your firefighters 100% utilized. Because if you do, then the next fire that breaks out very likely structures will burn and people might die. And as citizens, we've deemed that to be unacceptable. So we actually pay firefighters to be idle most of the time. Why? Because when you need them, you need them. And you need them now. And any cost of delay associated with that work is unacceptable because the ramifications are too great. So I'm not saying you should pay people to sit around and be idle on your software projects, but I am suggesting the following. If there's a certain skill set that when you need it, you need it, and any delay in it becoming available blocks your work and there is significant cost of delay in the blockage, you might want to seriously rethink the strategy of trying to keep everybody 100% utilized. Very true. I love that example. There are tons of questions that I would love to ask you, but I definitely want to respect your time. With that said, my final question is in reference to validated learning, which is mentioned in your book, Essential Scrum. I'm a huge fan of validated learning and the Lean Startup by Eric Ries, which I highly recommend. We may have some audience members that are not yet familiar with the concept and how it might apply to their team. Can you please take a few minutes and explain to our listeners validated learning? Sure. Uh, and Lean Startup is, is a very good book. And it, it does leverage <clears throat> core agile principles. And, and I look and I love the term, which is why you know I used it in, in the Essential Scrum book, because it, it very nicely captures a category of principles that are fundamental to Agile. And the way the way to think about validated learning is you should validate important assumptions fast. It's dangerous to make an important assumption and have it live long in an unvalidated state. Because if I make an assumption, and I don't go off and validate it some way, I start building things or making other decisions on top of that assumption. And if a long time later, I finally validate or attempt to validate the original assumption, what if I determined the original assumption was wrong? Now I'm likely sitting on a problem that is much, much larger than it needed to be. So most people are familiar with the techniques for performing validated learning. It's prototype, proof of concept, study, experiment, meaning validated learning is the act of buying information. That when you're presented with a high degree of uncertainty, and therefore you've made an assumption, right? Because if you were certain about something, you wouldn't have to make an assumption. You would just make the correct decision. But in the presence of a high degree of uncertainty, you have to make these assumptions. And then what you have to do is go buy knowledge, buy information to validate your learning, meaning to be able to confirm or refute the hypothesis that you stated, the assumption that you made is correct or it isn't. You just have to do that fast. So in Agile, if you, th if you think about a, a learning loop, you know, we make an assumption, then we build something, then we get feedback on what we built, then we inspect and adapt. The goal is to go through that loop very, very quickly. Right? And so uh, in Agile, the, the third part of this for validated learning is you have to organize the flow of your work to get fast feedback. 
in a sense, you say, what is the next most important thing I can learn? And then go learn it, meaning validate your learning. And if you learn that you're going the wrong way, pivot. Take what you learn, plant your foot, and alter your direction. Take the learning that you have, and it maybe go a better place based on that. And so validated learning has two superior economic characteristics. One, it prunes a bad path quickly. If you're going down the wrong path, what you don't want to do is keep running down that path very fast. You'd like to determine you're on the wrong path quicker so that you can then pivot over to a new path. That's economically valuable. The second economic characteristic, it helps you exploit an emergent opportunity faster. What you don't want to do is learn late in a project, wow, there was a much better way we could have done this, when it's likely too late to do anything about it in this release and maybe in the future. Maybe we're so far committed down the path we're on that even though we all now agree there is a much better way of doing it, we actually can't exploit it. By validating your learning sooner, you're able to then exploit those opportunities sooner and end up in a much better place. So this is a critical concept. Uh, it applies in startup companies. It applies in well-established companies that are building you know, the next generation of their existing product that's been there for 10 years. You have to validate your learning, validate the important assumptions fast, and you organize the flow of your work to get that fast feedback. Thank you so much, Ken, for being such a great guest on our show. I'd love to give the listeners an opportunity to learn more about your services and how they may be able to contact you. Can you please take a few minutes to expound upon that? I appreciate that. Uh, so I have a website. It's uh, uh, innolution.com. It's uh, I-N-N-O-L-U-T-I-O-N.com. And on there, I have a blog that I, I talk about a lot of these topics. Um, and I also have a lot of my presentations that I give at conferences. So anybody who's interested, feel free. You can go download presentations on portfolio management, on what I call essential scrum, uh, and, and a variety of other topics, the most recent being risk management. So by all means, uh, feel free to have a look at that. Um, I, Mike Cohn and I also have developed a tool called Comparative Agility. It's a, it's a free survey that you can take. Uh, that at the end it tells you how agile your team is by comparing you with close to 13,000 other people who've already taken the survey. So there's a number of resources out there. And uh, also I, I do offer training and coaching. So if your company might have an interest, feel free to contact me. All my information is on my website. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ken, and for your great insight and advice. I appreciate you hosting me and uh, wish everybody the best of luck with their application of Agile. Thank you for listening to All Things Agile. We look forward to you subscribing to the podcast in iTunes and leaving a kind review. Thanks and God bless.